This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hello, I'm Joe Lauder. I'm with you for the Hack podcast. Now, you would have heard of millennials before. You might even be one. But something I'd never heard of until recently is pre-millennialism. And it's not some like kooky BuzzFeed trend. It's actually quite dark. Premillennialism is this extremist fundamental Christian belief and it's behind a shooting in Queensland a year ago. We're going to hear a bit more about that and about an FBI arrest in the States over that shooting and also how the Israel-Gaza war is driving an increase in racism back here in Australia and what you can do to call it out if you see it. First, though, stick around because we're speaking to the NDIS Minister, Bill Shorten, about major reforms to how people with disabilities get support here in Australia. Hack! Australians with disability, their families and carers, they need us to fix the NDIS. On Triple J. Yeah. We talk a lot on Hack about the incredible difference the NDIS or the National Disability Insurance Scheme has made to people's lives. But also we hear time and time again about how challenging it can be to access the right care and right support. Well, over the past year, there's been a major inquiry into these challenges. And today, a final report was released about how to make the NDIS better. So will it bring about change? We're going to be asking the Minister for the NDIS, Bill Shorten, that question in a moment. But if you have a disability and you're on the NDIS, what's it been like for you? What would you like to see changed? Text me, text me on 0439 75 7555. Here's reporter Angel Parsons with a wrap on how we got here. So let's think back for a second to 2012. Somebody I used to know is topping the charts. The first Hunger Games is released. And back then, Australia did not have the NDIS. And we're here today together to make a very important announcement about the National Disability Insurance Scheme. People with disability, community organisations and advocates had been fighting hard for a complete overhaul to how people living with disability get support, calling for a National Disability Insurance Scheme. And in 2013, it was legislated. For those 410,000 Australians, they currently face an underfunded system and a fragmented system. For years afterwards, there were trials and transitions. And by 2020, the scheme was fully rolled out across Australia. Now, 630,000 people are on the NDIS. And I want to introduce you to one of them. So the NDIS has helped out with equipment, which has been really good. Dave Conway is from Mackay. He lives with paraplegia, vision impairment and chronic pain. Do you remember first getting on the NDIS and how did that change your life? Uh, getting on the NDIS was awesome. Accessing support workers means that I can live in my own place, go out in the community and do things like that, whereas beforehand I was literally living at home with my parents and they were doing everything for me. And as a guy that moved away when he was 18 to go to university, losing that bit of independence was pretty hard. But he told me it has been stressful to deal with the NDIS sometimes, like when an assessor cut his funding to a fifth of what he'd usually get. When my local area coordinator called me up, she was almost in tears because she knew how much this would affect me. Dave was able to appeal and get his full funding again, but still, the stress. And Dave is not the only one. The scheme was drifting off the course that we as participants had hoped it would be. The NDIS has just been absolutely bloody terrible. Providers have been caught exploiting loopholes to overcharge and defraud the scheme. 
And so last year, the government announced an independent review to investigate how to make the scheme better and bring down costs, which, by the way, have blown out to $35 billion a year. Here's the panel's co-chair, Lisa Paul. It's absolutely clear to us that the NDIS is a total game changer, life changer. But you've also told us about how much pain you've suffered through trying to deal with the NDIS. After a year looking into this, the panel today handed down its 26 recommendations. Many of them are about making more mainstream support available to the 4.4 million Aussies who have a disability but aren't on the NDIS. It also talks about how an over-reliance on the NDIS has meant disability support outside the scheme has been pretty neglected. So the review wants what it calls better foundational supports saying specifically that there are few supports outside of the NDIS for young people trying to become more independent. Other recommendations were around trying to fix a worker shortage, a new approach to psychological disability, and funding someone based on their impairment rather than their disability diagnosis. So this investment in foundational supports benefits everybody in the community, not just people in the NDIS. Here's Nicole Lee from People with Disability Australia. Having that social model of disability versus medical model of disability really looks at you know the ways in which the world around us actually create a lot of these impairments and limit our capacity. So I see this as a really positive way um, to move forward. How that will work in principle and what that will look like and how they're going to implement that, you know, we really need to you know, sort of understand understand and work through the nuance of the details and and that's something we don't quite have yet. For Dave, really he's just hoping this all leads to action. That money can be helping so many people. Hack on Triple J. That was Angel Parsons reporting. Ali from Melbourne on the text line says, my son's just qualified for the NDIS and oh my gosh, do providers rip you off so much. It was $400 for a 45-minute speech therapy assessment. And Zoe in Tweedhead says, I'm a support coordinator and the NDIS is honestly crazy to navigate, let alone for my clients. Well, to hear a bit more about these reforms, I've got the NDIS Minister, Bill Shorten. Minister, thanks so much for coming on Hack. Oh, it's a pleasure, thank you. Minister, if you were to summarise these reforms in a sentence or two for people who haven't engaged with the NDIS before, how would you describe it? The NDIS is here to stay. It's changing lives for the better. But we just want to make sure that every dollar gets through to the participant. We want to make sure that it's there for future generations and that people are getting really good outcomes. Is the problem that this review is trying to address mostly about the cost of the NDIS or how it works for people with disabilities? It's about the future for people with disability in this country, first and foremost. I have a view that if we get the right disability systems, in other words, we become a country which properly includes people with disabilities and don't let their disability be a barrier to engaging, then the cost issues sort themselves out. One point that came out from this review that you've um, released today is that there are so many more kids on the NDIS than was ever expected. Why wasn't that predicted when, when it started? I don't know, you'd have to ask the actuaries at the time, but one thing is that our awareness of, uh, and I don't want to pick pick particular diagnoses, but our awareness uh, and understanding of people who are neurodivergence really getting a lot better in the last decade. So I think there was always, and beyond that, I think there were lots of kids with developmental delays who were just slipping between the the net, falling falling out of the net, and that their developmental delays 
weren't observed early and supported early and as a result they end up at some point in their schooling system not getting the outcomes they should. Uh, but also I think one of the issues is that the NDIS has become regarded as the only lifeboat in the ocean. So if you have any developmental delay, you try and get onto the NDIS. Whereas the NDIS is meant to be one of a menu of supports for people who have developmental delays and you know, we sh what we should be doing is getting the right support for a person's needs, not telling them you've got to go to this program or that. If there's going to be a reduction in funding for the NDIS, will that money then go to supporting people with disabilities outside the NDIS and some of those supports that we're just talking about? That's an important issue. I want to be really clear here because there'll be some people who will just try and frighten everyone. The scheme is currently growing at 16 to 17% per annum. Our aim is that in about three years, it would grow at about 8%. So there'll be no reduction in the scheme going forward. What we think we can do is that there is some money being wasted. There is some money which is being used inefficiently. There are some fraudulent providers. There are some providers who are selling therapies and supports which are just not real, uh, not evidence-based. There's some people who, when you put the word NDIS in front of it, they just double the price of whatever they're selling or doing. So it'll keep growing. And yes, some of the money which we're not going to waste in the future at the top end of the scheme will be used to reinvest in supports outside the scheme. One of the other recommendations is around changing the NDIS. So and that getting a diagnosis doesn't mean automatic access mm. to the NDIS. Does this mean that people will have to go through the process of getting diagnosed and then a whole other process of getting NDIS approval? No, the, the basic point about that is that what's happened a little bit in the last few years is that the scheme has changed. It was originally meant to be how your disability affects you. So you've got to have a disability, then you'll look at how it affects you. But there were some decisions made around 2017, 2018. Well, ah, well, if you've got the diagnosis, we won't even look at how it affects you. We'll just put you into the scheme. So that's probably led to, um, I think, inequitable outcomes where if you're from a culturally and linguistically diverse background, if you live in the bush or if you're very working class and you haven't got a lot of uh, access to fancy report writing, you don't get in. Your need doesn't get examined, but your but then other people who are able to just get a diagnosis are able to have a much more um, e easier run into the scheme. We want to take it back to its original purpose, and the disability sector fundamentally agrees with this. Let's look at the disability and then the impact that has on you and then what support you need. Yeah, we heard earlier from Dave, who he lives in regional Australia, and he told mm. us that it took hours and hours and thousands of dollars to do those assessments that you were saying to determine yeah. his functional impairment. Are you saying that this would potentially make it easier? Yeah, we're looking at... The reviews asked us to look at the National Disability Insurance Agency, the people who run the NDAs, that they pay for the report. That'll just change a whole lot of things. It'll mean people who've got... Anyway, it's going to decrease the price of reports. It'll decrease the overcharging on some of them. It'll also mean that um, people, groups in, in our society who don't have access, as you said, to that problem that Dave outlined will all of a sudden be on a level playing field. You're listening to Hack and I'm speaking to the NDIS Minister, Bill Shorten. Minister, are you concerned that some people might get kicked off what you call the only lifeboat in the ocean and they might be left without those outside supports from the outside the NDIS, no. like you said? 
No. I mean, at the, first of all, just at the moment, your plans can be increased or decreased or kicked off or put on now. So it's not as if that everyone on it's now is guaranteed exactly everything going forward. And in some cases, they'll need more. In some cases, they'll need less. But the purpose of these changes is to make sure that a person is getting the right sort of support. So what will define whether or not you get onto the scheme are your needs. So that won't change. So if you have uh, needs of support, which the NDIS supplies, then you'll get them from the NDIS. If your needs are... Um, not as intensive or you don't need that sort of support, then what we want to do is provide you other options. So people who genuinely need to be on the scheme will still be on the scheme. People who can get their supports, and none of this is going to happen overnight. We're talking about years. I've been around. I don't want to just, you know, this is not some magician's trick where you sort of pull a a blanket off a box and you go, ta-da. This is people's lives we're talking about. People with disability that don't need things done to them, they need things done with them. So there'll be a long process and a lot of kids getting support now, are gonna, I mean, nothing's going to change tomorrow. But over the journey, I do want to have a conversation with our childcare system, our school system, but of course we can't do that unless there's extra resources. So I'm not intending to leave people in the lurch. Just on that as well, we have a lot of people in our audience who work in the disability sector mm. as well. And we've been reporting a lot this week about how lots of people who work across the whole healthcare sector are pretty burnt out at the moment. True. Um, what's being done with these reforms? Is there anything to address those staffing issues as well? Yeah, there is some. There's a discussion in the report about do we look at portable training? Do we look at portable uh, long service leave. We're also separately, I'm meeting with the unions across Australia, a lot of the employers and disability advocates because everything's got to include the voice of people with disability. And we're looking at how we can make decrease the churn. So one thing we can do by decreasing the churn is offer more permanent jobs in, in the agency. The second thing we can do is try and lift standards of accreditation and screening, give people career paths. And of course, the more training you get and the more accreditation you get, then you're able to be paid more money. Mr. Shorten, thank you so much for making the time to come on, on Hack on such a busy day. It's a very important issue. I just want to, we're going to talk to people the whole time and listen to people. There's zero arrogance in this. It's about making sure that people with disability get the best deal possible and that the scheme's there for future generations. Thank you. That was the NDIS Minister Bill Shorten on the text line. Someone says, what they need to change is the ridiculous amounts that allied health professionals are allowed to charge. And someone else says, we'd be lost without the NDIS. Our non-verbal autistic son just wouldn't be getting the therapies available. Hack. We know that the offenders executed a religiously motivated terrorist attack in Queensland. They were motivated by a Christian extremist ideology known as pre-millennialism. On Triple J. A man in the US has been linked to an attack in rural Queensland last year that left six people dead in Wyambila, including two police officers and a neighbour. The ambush has been described as a religiously motivated terrorist attack and the, killer, the killers believed in a form of fundamental Christianity known as pre-millennialism. April McLennan has the latest with this story. It is with deep sadness that I confirm the deaths of three people, including two officers. This is indeed a devastating day for everyone who loved these Australians. And our hearts go out to those in the grip of terrible grief. It is an unimaginable tragedy. This has been incredibly distressing. 
and tragic for everyone. It's almost a year ago from today when four police officers went to a remote property at Wiambilla. It's about 300 kilometres west of Brisbane. They were investigating a missing person report, but when the officers got to the house, they were inundated with gunfire as an armed trio lay waiting, ready to attack. It was camouflaged clothing. There were multiple erected barriers. They had radios. Uh, we even located a trap door under the house, which might have enabled an, an easy escape. Constables Rachel McCrow and Matthew Arnold and neighbour Alan Dare were all killed. They worked together. Sadly, they died together. Matt, you deserved so much more from the public you lived to protect. You are a hero and will never be forgotten. Heaven has truly gained an angel. Fly high, beautiful girl. With honour and courage you served. The shooters, Stacey, Gareth and Nathaniel Train, were fatally shot by police. Now the FBI have arrested 58-year-old extremist Donald Day Jr. from Arizona in the US, who they say is linked to the Wiambilla ambush. Police say their investigation has revealed Donald Day Jr. has been a part of the shooters' lives online for more than two years before they murdered three people. They're alleging Donald Day Jr. repeatedly sent the trains what they describe as Christian end-of-day ideological messages. Gareth and the man began commenting directly on each other's videos in May 2021. We have evidence to show the trains subsequently accessed an older YouTube account created by the same man in 2014 and viewed that content. Donald Day Jr. is now facing two charges. The first charge is about the Queensland shooting. Police say he made a post about the attack after it happened and allegedly threatened to injure other law enforcement officials. The second charge is for an unrelated threat of violence he allegedly made to the head of the World Health Organization. The Queensland ambush has been described as a religiously motivated terrorist attack with the killers following a fundamental Christian belief known as premillennialism. It's the dominant view of particularly American Protestant Christians about the way the world ends. And it says that we're living before a dramatic end of the world, an apocalypse, an Armageddon sort of final confrontation, after which God will set things right with a thousand year reign of Christ on earth. That's Greg Barton. He's an expert in radicalization and violent extremism at Deakin University. And Greg says most Christian fundamentalists don't actually resort to violence. But it does set yourself up um, if you're deviating from mainstream Christianity into a, you know, a, a cultish church, which appears to be the case with the trains. It sets you up for a view of the world where everything is getting worse and it's inevitable that there will be a final confrontation and you just have to embrace that and recognise you're not going to fix this, this world. So in the, in the most extreme cases, you're preparing for a fight. Greg reckons the train saw the government and police as the enemy and used their religion to justify fighting them. What we know about the trains is they grew up in a very uh, fundamentalist uh, Christian background and, and in, in their later life, um, they went down a very dark path largely by themselves. So they were losing track of reality. Key friends like the, the man just arrested in America appeared to have reinforced their view that they were going to end up in a, in, a, in a battle with the government. A coronial investigation into the attack is still ongoing. And over in the US, Donald Day Jr's appeared in court and pleaded not guilty. Although there's a chance that more charges could still be laid. Hack on Triple J. That was April McLennan reporting there. Hack. There's no real individual way of combating racism. It has to be done in this more collective and systemic way. On Triple J.
We've been bringing you lots of updates about the Israel-Gaza war and it's probably all over your social media at the moment. And it's easy to see conflicts like that and think that it's happening over there and not here and doesn't affect us. But massive global events like the conflict in the Middle East have huge repercussions for people here in Australia. There's been rise in reports of both anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. As Shalila Medora reports, three out of four Australians think racism is a problem in Australia. And just a warning, this story contains some descriptions of racism that might be pretty full on for some listeners. Law student Zach Morris is Jewish, but he says a lot of people don't realise. I look like, you know, any other straight white male. And that means people have said some really vile anti-Semitic stuff to his face. In my first term at university, we were doing a group project, I remember. I said, the first thing we're going to, you know, attack is this argument. And then the second thing we're going to do, and then someone jumped in and said, kill the Jews. And then there's much more subtle forms of racism, like stereotyping. This background of Jews being so powerful and wealthy and influential and you know, these are tropes, the anti-Semitic tropes that have you know been perpetrated for centuries. He says society seems willing to accept that, even though it's really hurtful to Jewish people. A lot of the time, those people feeding into that perception aren't necessarily doing it from a bad place. They're not necessarily identifying as Jew haters, but the things that they're saying, the things that they're doing are, are really contributing to that environment where you know, anti-Semitism and, and racism towards Jews is kind of Minimized, And all of this happened before the Israel-Gaza war. Zach says the last two months have seen a terrifying escalation in anti-Semitism. Over the last two months, I've had students calling me in tears saying, is it safe to come onto campuses? Your very identity is under threat as a Palestinian, you know. The level of trying to erase that identity is in itself a dehumanising experience. Art student Rand is a proud Palestinian woman who's lived in Australia since she was a child. She says the last two months have been really intense for her community. How dare you speak out for Palestine? How dare you speak out for human rights? And it's just, it's this constant attack. And so it's been quite a lot to deal with. Rand says pro-Palestinian events have been cancelled due to backlash and people are saying the most horrible Islamophobic stuff in public. I had some page that was clearly a fake that said, fuck Pislam, so Islam, but with a P, like piss, you know, a vile page name just to go out there and harass Muslims. It's important to note that Palestinians aren't all Muslim, but that hasn't stopped people from expressing Islamophobic views as a result of the war in the Middle East. But Rand says all of this hate has always been there. I grew up in a post 9-11 Australia. I grew up during, you know, the war on terror. I went to high school in the Shire right after the Cronulla riots. If you think Rand is exaggerating, think again. This year, around about one in four people say they have a negative attitude towards Muslims. Um, And this compares to, say, 15% of people with a negative attitude towards Christians and, and less than 10% for people from other faiths. Dr James O'Donnell is a demographer and author of this year's Mapping Social Cohesion report. The report has been going since 2007, so it gives us a pretty good idea of trends in this space. Dr O'Donnell says Australians have had negative attitudes towards Muslims for a long time, though attitudes had been improving before the war. As we've seen with recent marches and rallies, Anti-Semitism has been bubbling away under the surface too. 
The survey for the most recent mapping social cohesion report was done in July, before the Israel-Gaza war started. But Dr O'Donnell says there is precedent for big global events to increase racist attacks here. And during the COVID period, people particularly from Chinese and Asian backgrounds reporting racism, but particularly confronting was the reports of sort of abuse in various forms, being yelled at and verbal abuse on the streets. Both Zach and Rand say this gross, tense period we're in has made them and members of their communities change their behaviour for their own safety. I typically wear a kufiya, which is the black and white scarf, um, which, you know, is a symbol of our, our culture, our resistance, our heritage. And I have been more careful about where I wear it. People who are you know, wear a kippah or or a head covering, are terrified to kind of go out to some people that will make them a target. Students aren't wearing their Stars of David, they're not wearing their identifiers. I used to have a bumper sticker on my car and I actually, I took off the one that has the Palestinian flag. It's now become such a normal thing is to kind of, before you leave the house, you check to see how identifiably Jewish you are. You have to think about where you're going. All of this has contributed to a really fragile sense of Australian unity. Social cohesion was was lower than it has been uh, since 2007. But Dr O'Donnell says there are glimmers of hope. We're still quite connected within our neighbourhoods and local communities. And we we continue to value multiculturalism, the value of our diversity and what it's contributed towards Australian society, culture and the economy. And so so these are the sorts of things that if we can kind of continue to nurture, they can kind of help us manage through these difficult times and remain connected. Hack Triple J. That was Shalila Madora reporting... Now, to find out more about what you can do about this, especially if you see acts of racism and you want to call it out, I've got Jenny Cow with me. She's from Democracy in Colour. Jenny, thank you so much for coming on Hack. Thank you for having me. Just to start with, how alarmed are you to hear those stories about the racism that some people have been experiencing since the start of October when the conflict in the Middle East began? Um, I'm definitely really alarmed and, you know, we've definitely been seeing a major increase in racism, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism in everyday life, but also online and, of course, in the media. Um, but I think it's really important that we note that, you know, racism has always been an issue in this country and that it is really deeply embedded in our society and the world's current events are really just exasperating these conditions. Yeah, and the second half of this year has felt especially fractious, I'd say, you know, with the voice referendum, now this conflict in the Middle East. Do you think that's likely to have a major impact on our social cohesion at the moment? Yeah, I think it's definitely um, created some major rifts in social cohesion. And again, you know, it's something that we're always worried about when it comes to racism. You know, it's got major impacts on an individual, but it also really deeply impacts the way our systems work, um, which is why at Democracy in Colour, we really work on catalyzing structural change as well. When we talk about what we can be doing about this, what can organisations like workplaces and schools and sporting organisations, what can they be doing to help? And when they do take a stance, like a sporting club, for example, do you think that does make a positive difference? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I'll give an example, actually. Um, so during COVID, um, which, you know, was a particularly tough time for the Asian community, um, you know, I've been called slurs on buses um, and, you know, faced quite, you know, very racist comments. Um, and unfortunately, you know, no one stood up for me or stepped in. 
Um, and these are times when we really do need allyship mm. and solidarity the most. You know, this is a shared experience felt by so many people of colour, First Nations people, and, of course, um, you know, we're seeing increasingly more instances of racism now faced by people in the Arab community. Um, so on an individual level, I think if you're seeing and hearing something racist happening in your community, workplace, online spaces, we need more people to speak up and call it out. You know, we need people to speak up and stop that racist comment as soon as it happens, you know, and do it in a way that feels right for you in the moment. And of course, if you're feeling safe enough to do that. Um, but it also means connecting and offering support to the person facing that racism um, after the incident. Yeah, do you have any tips and, for people for calling it out if they feel like they they are maybe not like confident or haven't done it before? I tend to usually just go up the person being affected um, and just to check in and see if they're okay and kind of, oh, let's just move to a different area. Um, if the space calls for, you know, if you're feeling a bit more safe, um, I would say just, hey, you, we don't need to say that here. That doesn't need to happen. And immediately, you know, turn your um, attention to the person being affected. Um, yeah, again, there's little things you can do in your everyday life. Mm. But what's really important as well is that we take that step to engage in, you know, structural change. Mm. I'm speaking to Jenny Cow from Democracy in Colour. We've been waiting on the federal government to devise an anti-racism strategy for a while now. Do you think strategies like that as well, do they help change attitudes? Yeah, they definitely do. Um, I think, though, those kind of strategies need to come from people with lived experience. You know, we need, for example, the Multicultural Framework Review Um you know, we need more people who actually have that lived experience because we have the solutions for those kind of problems, you know, and um, the federal government really needs to, I guess, engage um, with people like us. Hack on Triple J. That was Jenny Cow from Democracy in Colour. That's it for the Hack podcast. Dave's going to be back for tomorrow for the shakeup. They're going to be talking about Taylor Swift being Time Person of the Year, so make sure you tune in.